Hello, and welcome to Impacting the Classroom, the podcast that brings together policymakers, educators, and researchers to discuss what's happening across the education landscape. I'm your host, Marnetta Larimer. And I'm Dr. Darlene Estes-Del-Ray, and today we're excited to be joined by the CEO of the Council for Professional Recognition, Dr. Calvin Moore. Welcome, Dr. Moore. We are so excited to have you, and we're so looking forward to this conversation. Hello, good afternoon. I'm so excited to be with you as well and looking forward to our conversation. I'm sure it's going to be dynamic. Uh, I hope so. Usually it is <laughs> far more dynamic than we can ever expect. I know there's a lot of CDA has been around for a while and it's been such a great resource for educators who are trying to elevate their practices in their spaces. Dr. Moore, for those who may not be familiar with the CDA, can you talk about what it is? and how it can help educators to build their professional skill set. Well, you're absolutely right. The CDA has been around for 46 years, and we're very excited to celebrate that achievement and milestone. Uh, More than 800,000 individuals have uh, been awarded the CDA in its history. It is the most widely used early childhood credential in our country and indeed across the world. Uh, We're so excited. It's It's a a staple of our field in that it's the best first step for individuals either coming into the field or for those who've been in the field for a while that want to seek some type of credential to sort of um, affirm their uh, place in our field as early childhood educators. Uh, The other thing I would say is that the National Credentialing Program is an assessment program where the CDA candidate comes to the council saying that they're ready to participate in our credentialing program. And then we walk them through the credentialing process, which includes a professional portfolio, a verification visit by a professional development specialist and a national CDA exam. Wonderful. Before they get to that point, what is the process? What do they have to do before they get to that point? Uh, Great question. So there are some preparatory requirements. They're required to complete 120 clock hours of training They have to have 480 hours of experience actually working with young children in the setting that they're pursuing, either preschool age, infant toddlers. We have a family child care CDA. So they have to be uh, experienced in working with young children, and we require 480 hours. They have to complete a professional portfolio and really document their competence in six competency areas. And there are 13 functional areas that sort of guide their uh, journey uh, as a professional. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. I have a couple of follow-ups for that. For those that are still like, hmm, I, I'm kind of like really interested, but I'm like not really sure. Like what topics are these really going to help me as like an early childhood teacher? So if you had to say like, what are the top three? I know it's hard to like, there's so much great stuff in the CDA, but top three things that like why this is such a fit for early childhood versus like, say I'm a, I'm a second grade teacher. Why is this like such a, a, a anchor for the early childhood space for that infant toddler preschool? So that's a great question. I just want to stipulate, I received my CDA in 1992. And as a professional, I wanted to say on this conversation today that it really provided the foundation for me as an early childhood practitioner. Uh, The core competencies, the top three that I would sort of point out to you is competency number one, to establish and maintain a safe, healthy learning environment. Competency number two, to advance physical and intellectual competence. And then I think competency 
Uh, number five is really important where we guide the, the practitioner to ensure a well-run purposeful program that is responsive mm -hmm. to participant needs. And that includes uh, the families, not just the child, but the families that they serve as well. That's great. I'm always, I'm always a huge fan of like any coursework that helps people understand both children and families, especially yeah. the development of the child, you know, like how can we support that development and safety of course is always so helpful. So thank you for that context. Um, it reminds me too, of like, as we think about the CDA and how beneficial it is for individuals and, and their own pathway. I loved how you said it's the best first step. I like, couldn't have said that better myself. And so we know that it's so helpful for individuals. But I'm, I'm thinking more about a topic we've talked about on this podcast where we've dug a little bit into the current challenges that have accelerated. We've, they've always been challenges for the early childhood field, but with COVID and the pandemic, they have you know just really accelerated being the challenges of recruiting and retaining educators. And we know that one report has shown that more than 160,000 educators have left the field. Some have left for jobs that are paying more. We, we know with retail now, like paying a minimum of $15 an hour. We know that our early childhood programs just simply can't afford to pay that. And we at Teachstone, as we talk to directors, we're hearing more and more like directors themselves who are having to step inside classrooms and cover classrooms because either there's a shortage of the staff they've left or because of the COVID pandemic. So Dr. Moore, you've talked about, again, those benefits of the credentialing for the individual, but I wonder just you're such an expert in the space. Could you tell me more about credentialing in the space of how it could be used to support this current shortage of early educators? Well, we've been paying attention to the research just like you, and we are alarmed at the numbers of teachers that are leaving the field. I think it's going to be important for us to work together to find solutions and strategies that not only uh, recruit more into our field, but actually retain those that are in the field and actually bring those back who have left. And I think the CDA and other credentials in our field play an important role in both the retention and actually return of early childhood professionals. One of the things that we've been thinking about is hosting listening sessions where we actually connect state leaders with uh, people on the ground working in programs, because we believe that as providers obtain credentials like the CDA, they should demand higher pay, and there should be a strategy at the state level to reward those individuals when they achieve those credentials. I also think that there should also be a, an active career lattice that people can identify outside the field and put pressure on business leaders who rely on childcare to do more to advocate for change and, and not just paying more wages, but systematic change to make sure that providers not only have a livable wage, but that they have benefits as well. I think all of those things working together, listening, finding strategies, and then funding those strategies will help us retain those employees. Yeah. So you're going to have these um, sit and listens. What other advocacy work for the early childhood field does the council do? Well, that's a great question. We just hired our first director of public policy. And she's going to be hosting a Hill Day for the CDA stakeholders in March. It's the first time that we've sort of gotten our feet wet in the uh, advocacy arena uh, because we've, we've always relied on others in our field to advocate for the CDA. But we've decided, Marnetta, to use our own voice to tell our own story and then activate our network. I mentioned at the onset 
Uh, we have over 800,000 individuals across the country who, who have received this wonderful credential, including myself. We want to arm them with the skills they need to advocate for themselves at the federal, state, and local level. And we believe our Hill Day is our first opportunity to do that. I was checking a few days ago, already 200 individuals across the country who are important players in this conversation have registered for our first Hill Day, and we're excited. Yeah, well, I mean, you have a huge voice, so I love that you guys are stepping into that arena, because I think it's going to be not only impactful for the field, but people, you know, you're going to be looked at differently, right? So it's not just going to be, you know, this mouth service, it's going to be this other (laughs) work, right? Like, not that you weren't doing great things anyway, but I think it just elevates the work that the CDA Council is doing, so. I I think so, and and we're, we're not trying to steal anyone's territory here. We are really narrowly focused on the CDA credential itself and how important it is uh, as a lever of change in our field. So I'm curious if the Hill Day has a virtual element or in-person only, or is it hybrid? How is that working? So that's a great question. Our first Hill Day is totally virtual. We're setting up workshops and webinars for people that have registered They're going to go through a series of of, uh, role-playing exercises to prepare them to meet with their particular member of Congress. And then toward the end of the week, we've set up appointments for them to actually meet with them in triads and and maybe duos and and sometimes larger groups, depending on the, the registrants. But yeah, it's going to be a virtual event, and we're setting up actual appointments with staffers and members of Congress toward the end of the week so that they can meet virtually with them as well. Um, how would one attend? How would one sign up to attend that? So if you go to our website, there is a landing page and individuals can register. Just uh, search for the uh, CDA on the Hill and you'll get to our landing page. There's a button that says register here. You'll be taken to a, a survey where we can take all your information and you'll get the agenda for the, the week. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Moore. So we talked some about credentialing and I'm wondering what other strategies program leaders may want to use to recruit, retain, and train educators? So I've been thinking deeply about this since uh, I began my tenure at the council. And one of the things that we have lifted up as a recruitment strategy is to start early. So we published a high school CDA toolkit. Uh, It's a beautiful publication. It's free for anyone who's interested, but, but we believe program leaders should look to start early and recruit professionals to work in their programs, even in high school and support high school CDA programs. And if you know someone who is interested in starting early, please send them our way because it's a beautiful opportunity for them to learn how we have been helping programs around the country uh, start these programs, support these programs. And believe it or not, people working with young children, they have a role to play in high school CDA. CDA programs, because these high school programs will need early childhood programs to have practicum experiences, to get that 480 uh, hours of experience under their Mm -hmm. belt. And we believe that is a pipeline directly into their programs once the high schooler graduates with the credential. Yeah, definitely going to enhance the workforce, right? And opportunities. I remember being in high school and you're just like, what? <laughs> what am I going to do? So that type of opportunity, that type of offering would have been a great gateway, 
right? An earlier start to my journey. I got here, right? But it would have been an even earlier start um, had that been an option back in my time as well. Yes, and, and we know that there is a connection between the high school CDA program and apprenticeship models that are cropping up all over the country. And we believe that that sort of answers the question, okay, now you got the high schooler, but how are you gonna keep the high schooler? And we yeah. believe that connecting them with apprenticeship programs allows them to get you know, started in the field and then be assured that they will get raises as they continue uh, in the field long-term. Dr. Moore, that I, I'm just curious. I know I, I'm actually based here in Tennessee, and and Tennessee's really deeply looking also at not just high school, like that outreach, like you're doing, which is so important. But they're almost really like thinking about starting a little bit even sooner and earlier and getting into the middle school oh, and wow. so thinking about like not where they can actually do some of the things, but you know, like they start to do this career exploration and just to, to have some exposure and things like that. So just curious around any thoughts or, or, you know, like what you might be thinking about, not just high school, but is there an earlier space? To well, that's about? an interesting notion. When you were talking, I reflected on my own experiences in middle school, and I think you're right. That's the first time we began to think about careers, right, as a middle schooler. And I remember being a part of a home ec program, right. making See. cinnamon rolls, uh, making my <laughs> own apron, uh, figuring out how to get, you know, get myself acclimated to the kitchen in a different way, but also to explore other careers uh, that I think are important to the workforce as well. And childcare fits within. Uh, that sort of career technical school model. And the earlier you start, the better, particularly when you're trying to diversify the field and attract more men into the field. The earlier you start, the better. That's right. Yeah, I mean, even in middle school, you know, caring for children, like you're babysitting, right? That's yeah. <laughs> so if I'm Absolutely. doing this, then I'm, I'm far more effective, right? I've learned so much more right? and I can earn more money because, you know, I've got, <laughs> I'm doing all of this other stuff. I'm not just your regular babysitter, <laughs> right? So yeah, I didn't even think about that, Darlene. That's a really good point. I think, you know, we are what we experience. And I think uh, if we could get qualified uh, teachers who are interested in childcare, in those middle school programs, in those high school programs, we are more likely not only to spark the imagination of young people about our career, but to really um, um, capture them early and make sure that they understand it is a viable option. We, we have not solved all of our issues, right, around financing, around pay, around benefits, but uh, I think it is a viable career option for a young person uh, looking to establish themselves as an early childhood professional. I think there's such a great opportunity. You have to get creative and innovative, of course, but like, I think that as we look to what's ahead of us, we have to lift up why, why we want to stay or, or even start with become a teacher, right? Like we need to do that attraction piece to say, this is the best career you might ever, ever have, right? Because you're making such change and difference. And so the earlier we can kind of get those messages and get their exposure to all you have to do, as I know, like from my own experience, experience that, that light bulb or that difference made in, in one child and you're sort of got, you're hooked. You're like, this is what I want to do. Right. So I think um, starting earlier. And so, yeah, I, I love that you guys are definitely in the high school space, but maybe going to tease you a little bit to think about that middle school space. Uh <laughs> yeah. I really like being pushed yeah. and stretched, uh, Darlene. Yeah. You've done that this morning. I have to get that. <laughs> so 
you were talking earlier about diversifying the field, right? And just, we have a clear absence of men, right? And we often miss the opportunities that men provide in mentoring, right? And showing up for children in a way that, you know, women can't (laughs) in the field. Talk to us more about that and those opportunities and how we could bring more men into the field. This has been part of my life journey as an African-American male in the field, a female-dominated profession for sure, Mm -hmm. uh, for many years. And so in many ways, our field has been feminized because uh, it's occupied by mostly women. Uh, And so I think we have to do a lot more to make the space welcoming for men, not just capturing them early like in high school, but I think that we have to look at ourselves and see why we don't attract men and, and then borrow some strategies from other fields who may be struggling with the same thing, like the nursing profession right. uh, or the trucking profession. And they may have some similar challenges and they may have some successes that we can borrow and implement in the early childhood field. But some of the things that I have done in my career to attract more men into the field is simply talking about it, talking about my journey, making sure that programs have to be really intentional when they're recruiting individuals to work in their programs, and really specifically say that they're looking for qualified men to fill these roles. And so a lot of people uh, don't think about that, but if you want a Spanish speaker, you actually put that in your advertisement. (laughs) You want a male teacher, maybe try putting that in your advertisement. Also think about uh, ways in which you can uh, include men in other ways. When I did my dissertation, um, I looked at a center who had a male teacher in every classroom They had a male bus driver. Uh, The family service worker was male. The center director was male. What they had reached is critical mass where men were concerned. And I think if you have more men in the center, men begot men. Men like hanging out with other men, just sort of shooting the breeze. And so you, you change the dynamic of your center when you make the space welcoming for fathers and important men in children's lives and thereby attract more men to work there. Is that how you got into the field? Like, so what? So let's talk about your beginning. So I got in the field by accident. I was, I had been <laughs> in the military for four years. I came back home after serving my country. And my aunt, who knew I was going uh, to finish my degree in education, said, Why don't you go work for that Head Start program and go to school part time? Work full time, go to school part time. And I took my aunt's advice, and the rest is history. They er- enrolled me in the CDA program. Like Darlene said, I caught fire, right? (laughs) Looking into the eyes of young children. I wanted to know as much as I can. Uh, So I have my aunt to thank for encouraging me to to work and get the experience under my belt as I was finishing my degree. And it worked out, right? Yeah. The rest is history, as they say. Amazing. I love that. You know, and I was just thinking I had, you know, I was visualizing you in that moment and thinking about all those little boys looking back at you and seeing you. And I wonder, you know, we never know how our impact is. And so years later, how many of those little faces that that were looking at you are now looking at new little faces because they saw you as a professional that they too could be one day. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for your service to our country, but thank you to also for the service for the children and families, because that's, that's an incredible story. And I thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Great. So Dr. Moore, like this is just so much to think about and, and especially in the time and space we are in. I also think about, you know, just the opportunity to 
Think about leaders. So many leaders, they have degrees in in different spaces, right? And they could be directors over early childhood programs. And they might not have got the good dose of like the the those competencies that are wrapped up into the CDA, right? So so if you think about how do we support leaders so that they can help push out the importance of a CDA to their staff. What might be your message be to them? And I know that's maybe just coming off the top of my head, but I just think about if you don't have the support of leaders, then sometimes teachers feel like they don't understand how I need to work with children or the families. And that could lead to why I leave the profession if I feel like I don't have leadership support. So what have you have found in your own you know, journey or in other programs you've seen like what has made a great leader to support the CDA? Like, what have you seen in the great leaders who have, have been helpful? Well, I think leaders are critically important in our field and certainly in this whole idea that we've been talking about, uh, better recruitment, better retention. And I think as we lift up leaders, it's important for them to know that credentials like the CDA really sort of say to uh, the families that, Uh, they serve, that they care about high quality, that they care about qualified individuals working with young children. And so I say to leaders in our staple of the world that you want to have CDAs working for you, that you want to prove to the communities where you're serving, that you have a commitment to high quality, and the CDA is part of that, that you have to look for ways to not only allow yourself to stand out in the marketplace, but to also demonstrate this commitment to our fields, to always push yourself, which is a core mission of the council, the improved performance and recognition of early childhood professionals, which is what leaders should be doing, right? Uh, Pushing their teachers to do more, to be more, and to to serve children with uh, high quality, and to also recognize them when they do achieve those higher standards. And, and the CDA really fits within that mold. And we rely on leaders to support their teachers in that way. So we've talked a lot about, I mean, this was all good stuff, right? Like I'm on fire now, right? <laughs> I will say I was on your CDA flyers for a couple of years. I attended a, a conference and they took a picture of me and I was like on the advertising flyer for like ever. It for was, a poster was, child. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but Yeah, that's another story. Um, um, So based on this conversation, right, and people getting excited about the CDA, then they knew about the CDA. It's always, you know, been this amazing thing that's, I mean, I know in the state of Louisiana, it's, you know, it's a staple for our educators, right? And childcare, it's, it's a minimum, right? We need this because our children are important, right? For educators looking to get their CDA, what opportunities may exist for them to get like scholarships, grants, so that they can elevate their interactions with children? So most states have CCDF funding that they really earmark for scholarships and CDA uh, teacher preparation, um, which includes the 120 clock hours of training. Uh, Many of them pay for the publications that go along with that training. Uh, And of course they pay for the assessment fees and that's for the initial CDA credential and the renewal. So anyone who's looking to earn their CDA and need support, please uh, reach out to your CCDF administrator, your state child care administrator for more information. And if you have trouble finding that information, please visit our website because we have information about programs and scholarship opportunities across the country 
are probably in a state near you or in the states where your listeners are. And we wanna make sure that we connect those people to the resources they need uh, to get this uh, wonderful credential. I know when I received my credential, I was working in a Head Start program, as I mentioned earlier, and the Head Start program paid for all of my training and publication. So there, there are no. varied opportunities to get the CDA. Sometimes you're working for a program that has a, a support system, but at the very least, there should be some state support for you as well. That is wonderful. So not only do we have this beautiful credential that exists, you can get it and not pay for it, <laughs> right? That's exactly so that right. Really, it removes that barrier for getting it. So I'm glad that we talked about it out loud, right? Because that might just be the last piece that somebody needed to know before they you know, ventured into getting and applying for their CDA. So I appreciate that. Thank you. So, you know, cost is sometimes the barrier, right? But I also think too, like people are like, okay, they've got me fired up. I'm like, I, I, I'm there. I'm, I really want to do this. But I'm a little worried because my own support system might not be there. So talk to me about like how the CDA might be built to support them on their journey. And is there flexibility? Because we are also talking about folks that are in it all day doing the work of the work, right? And so maybe folks are just trying to figure out like, how do, how do I fit that into my schema? So I would offer several things. So we have wonderful training programs across the country who also embed those services, those wraparound services within their program to help the candidates succeed. There are also online training programs for folks who need that option and it's a viable option for them. And I would also say, Darlene, that we accept training that the individual has already taken. I mean, if it fits within one of our eight subject areas, they don't have to do it over. They get credit for that training. And so there's a way for them to make this teacher preparation experience easier for them. And we can help them. All they have to do is call the council and we can walk them through uh, some of those uh, very difficult uh, waters to navigate. We've been thinking a lot about teacher preparation lately as we've been reimagining the process. And we also wanna help people with test anxiety. We know that there's a national exam. People are naturally anxious about that. So there are ways that we can support candidates uh, throughout the credentialing process that will make it easier for them. You know, in living in the early learning space, like childcare, you know, you have to get licensing hours. So it's great that the licensing hours I already have to have to meet the yes. standards, you know, to work, I can use for this credential. So it's not an extra thing, right? I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. That's so right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. I'm hanging on. I, I wrote so many notes. I'm hanging on <laughs> to so many things. Like I, I am so excited just to hear you also talk about the need for systemic change. And, you know, like the fact that you're doing these listening, you know, sessions and not just listening, but then like strategizing, because it's one thing to listen, but then not to do any action behind it. So then that leading to your first Hill day, I mean, like just seeing the, the journey forward and starting early to get uh, you know, kids interested in being teachers and why this is so important. And, and most importantly, just sharing your story. I think the most powerful thing I've heard today is your story. And just to get out there as an inspiration to young men and that this is a space and our, our young boys so much need that. And so I appreciate you just having this conversation with us today to lift up early childhood, the field, the profession, the CDA as a pathway. Um, I, I could just 
I'm going to be talking about this all day, but I'm, I'm going to let Marnetta uh, close us out <laughs> um, and just know that this transcription and our related resources we posted on our website, teachstone.com backslash impacting Marnetta. And remember behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together.